So there's a Operation Christmas Child flyer on here, and I'm just going to skip my introduction and back that up. Thank you so much for being in charge of that. Uh, in 2004, you guys might remember that there was a tsunami um, all well in the Pacific Ring, but uh, I had the privilege and challenge of, of working in Thailand on the border of Malaysia um, right after that. And it wasn't Christmas, but they had Christmas child boxes, and we were going into communities that were just absolutely devastated in a very closed part of the world. It's all Muslim. There's a lot of drug trafficking and such trafficking right on the border of Malaysia, and, and there's like bodies and trees. It was brutal. And to go in with a gift and for them to be invited to openly talk about the gospel and just bless the communities, even if it's not necessarily on Christmas, as one who's had the opportunity to pass out those boxes and see the tears and the joy that they captured so well in that little video, um, go big on this because God uses those. And I can, I can you know, put my, my, my word in with that lot. <laughs> so anyway, completely unrelated. Um, I, I was passing through. I actually hadn't planned on, on visiting you guys. I was on the road. Uh, it's been a long journey to get here, leaving from Mendoza, Argentina, into eastern Turkey along the border of Iran, and then in the back of my car for a week and a half. And now here we are. Uh, in the last month, I've been in four languages, so if I forget words and it just comes out in something that doesn't make sense, let's go context. Help me out. <laughs> Trying to write this sermon, I'm like, even sitting there writing and thinking about it and asking the couple I'm, I'm, I'm staying with, it's, it's not... Uh, I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> We're going to stick with that. Uh, I listen, I've been... Have your pastors not been doing an awesome job with Ephesians? Uh, I realize that it's been like seven months. And I've been listening along. And um, some of y'all are making fun of Dan for like doing two words for a sermon. No, no, no. This text is so rich. I'm impressed he's going that fast. Uh, so when he's like, hey, do you want to come share about what you're doing in Patagonia slash preach? I'm like, sweet. I love both of those things. Uh, and Ephesians is one of my favorite books. And yes. Uh, and then he's like, how about you do Ephesians 6, 10 through 17? And I'm like, whoa, two problems here. One, that's seven verses. <laughs> and secondly, it's on something that nobody likes to hear about. Satan, demon, demons, uh, the spiritual warfare. I, all right, we come from a culture. You guys know you're from the Illinois Northwest, especially up here where Satan and demons have been diminished into a cartoon character or a joke. Or they think it's something that religiously people will use as a, uh, a fear tactic to scare people into behaving well or to control them or, or whatever. I come from a secular university in my undergrad. It's like, I got that all the time. And then you get into the church and... It seems to me that we kind of tend to lean towards one of two camps. One is like Satan is behind everything and anytime something doesn't go my way, it's because the devil messed it up and, and like we get weirdo. And then there's the other side of the camp where more like our culture, um, we just rather not talk about it. And, you know, it might be in there, but we're going to claim all those promises of Jesus about things, uh, the deliverance and the safety and the transformation and the healing and, and the things that there are promises of God. But when it comes to the sheep among wolves, the spiritual warfare, the, the spiritual bondage, the generational sin, <laughs> uh, so that being said, I've got seven verses, a presentation on Patagonia and a topic that nobody wants to hear about no matter where I am. Thanks for having me. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm also told I have about 40 minutes total, and I'm coming out of a place where you got two hours of just the sermon part of the uh, service in 
viola español. Um, let's get started. I'm going to talk about the mission first. Can I do that? Is that cool? It's kind of a, this, this message, all of that introduction and frustration on the side is so cool because we're talking about the reality of the spiritual dynamics. We're reading in Ephesians here about the reality of spiritual dynamics that go on. And the enemy just conquering us and the earth and manipulating us and stealing the glory that God deserves. And, uh, and this ministry, we get to go down and do something about that. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin I'm super excited to share about. But I'm going to start with the ministry for a couple of reasons. One, I noticed that there's a couple here, I'm not going to point them out and embarrass them, that I have been praying and talking about and working with overseas and stateside. And their parents, some of the parents are here. And I'm, I'm hoping that God sends them down to join me. So I'm going to hammer on, on the ministry a little bit so that they get as much information and you guys get as much information as you can. And then we're going to look at some awesome text. So, Patagonia. My mind is a little scattered. Follow along here. We, um, it's confusing. I'm in transition. I'm currently not living in Chile or Patagonia, but instead across the mountains in a country called Argentina in a city called Mendoza. While in Mendoza, not what we're doing in, in Chile, but in Mendoza I've been working with street kids. Uh, we've got urban ministry with hookers and prostitutes and cracked out kids and thieves and um, my kids are 14, have their own kids, and they're now in a prison. It's in a high plains desert. It's, I call it the dust capital of the world. Uh, it's an oasis, so we have some water, but it's in a desert. It's dry. It's urban. And these are people very, very far from Jesus. Uh, now God is working, and he's moving there. It's actually through doing this that I met my fiance, my sweetie Ava. I'm actually half um, disappointed. Dan said that, oh, you look like somebody out of a movie. Uh, it's Brad Pitt from uh, World War Z. So I was telling Ava about this, and she's like, Brad Pitt, does that make me Angelina Jolie? And she goes like this. <laughs> so I'm like, pause right there. And we took a picture of Skype. I was going to put it up. We're not going to. Don't. She told me only, only if, oh, yeah, only if Dan puts that picture up. So you didn't see that, but she's darling and hilarious. Uh, <laughs> my, my Ava. There's pictures out there that are much more flattering, and I'd love to talk with you and share with you all about all kinds of things. But... I'm very excited about Ava. Anyway, so we're serving in the slums of uh, of Mendoza in the High Plains Desert, and God has been preparing me and us uh, for a long time to step into vocational ministry. I've been a construction worker and musician, and God made it evident that I was to continually take steps into ministry and into missions to the point where now I know that the calling is clear, and this is where he has us, and I'm stoked, but it's been a long go. So for any of you who are out there who are wrestling, maybe some of us younger and some of us not so younger, who are wrestling with what is our calling, don't be alarmed if it wasn't a God-pushing pause on the reality of life, parting the crowds and clouds and saying, this is what I want you to do. My experience has been step-by-step being faithful and obedient to what he's put before me little by little, and then that finally becoming clear. And my parents didn't like that. My friends thought I was nuts. But uh, that, that, that's okay. Just want to throw that out there. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Be encouraged. Um, we have been assigned over Patagonia. Now, Patagonia on the Chilean side. Patagonia, if you have South America, I was going to do pictures, but I'm, again, traveling out the back of my car. Uh, if you could make a heart, yeah, heart out of South America... The bottom third of that heart that goes all the way down to the point, and then down here is Antarctica, cold penguins. 
that's Argentina with mountains and a very skinny, very tall Chile. Now, the lower third, well, yeah, about a third of that is considered Patagonia. It's mountains falling into the ocean. It's gorgeous. We get about 12 to 14 feet of rain a year. Makes you guys look arid. Sorry. <laughs> to rain on your parade, we've got a lot of green. And uh, the, the people group that, that are down there that I've been assigned, and the reason that I've been assigned down there, I'll call them Mapuche. I'm going to tell you a little bit of their history real quick. Uh, to make what I'm about to share into some sense of climate context guy, put it into context. So this tribal, this people group uh, are the only, un, the only, how do I say this, English, come on. The only indigenous people group in South America that have always maintained their independence. So they've been around since the Mayans and the Aztecs. They were the third warring tribe. But when the conquistadors came over, they just went south into Patagonia where nobody's dumb and or crazy enough to follow them. And they stayed there. Since, um, so the colonialists came over, didn't mess with them. Eventually, much later, the Nazis came in, fought with them, fought them off, maintained their own um, rules and regulations and structure. After that, the communists moved in, made the Nazis look nice, fought them off. And today, we've got a democratic, quasi-socialist government, much more like modern-day stuff. And, uh, and, and, and whereas here in the States, we may have mapped off little regions to call it reserves for our native population. They've just mapped off entire regions of Patagonia. And the reason being is because they are violently opposed to any outside influence. Um, somebody comes in to tell them how to dress, how to walk, what languages speak, to change their jewelry, schooling, what that shit looks like. They just kill them and hide their bodies. They're pantheists, so... Um, spirits live in the trees and the rocks and the high places in the center of every village. There's like the spiritual epicenter. They have a totem pole, not too unlike our Native American population. And they, uh, they sacrifice to the angry spirits. The mean ones you don't have to worry about so much. It's the angry ones that you need to appease. So this is where they're coming from, which means if you get anywhere too close to the reserve to uh, prepare the land maybe to build a building on, you cut down a tree, they cut you down, and then they bury your body. If there's a law they don't like, they just disregard it. And when the police come... I'm doing a great job of recruiting these guys' kids, huh? When the police come, there's not like a road that goes in the village you have to hike in. So they try and enforce the law. They kill the police, hide the body. So the further south you get, when you're looking at the news, it's Mapuche problem this, Mapuche problem that, constantly. Mapuche riot here, Mapuche jailbreak there. Whatever it is, it's all about this group of people in a society, in a culture that has a very rigid class system. Now, it's not quite like the untouchables of India, but it's much closer to that than it is to here. Even in the big cities that are first world, uh, public schools, you'll have a mix of students. Even within the class, so you've got upper, middle, lower class, and then the Mapuche down here. Even if it's a middle class area, if you've got upper middle class and middle middle class kids, they don't sit at the same lunch table. So culturally, and this is in church too, if you're lower middle class, you don't go to an upper middle class church. It's bifurcated out terribly. That being said... No self-respecting Chilean is going to even acknowledge Amapuche. Um, they're not going to... Like, I have hippie hair right now. Uh, it's awesome, driving me nuts. But this is because the people group that we're working with wear long hair like samurais. And no self-respecting Chilean is going to have long hair because then they look like or are associated with Amapuche. They speak another language. It's called Mapungun, which is old like Aztec and Mayan. It's not derived from Spanish. It's way before that. Um, so this is an interesting area and people to be working with because God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, 
as he has for all of time, is breaking through all sorts of barriers and presenting some amazing opportunities to go in there and to love on some guys that he has called to reach their own people. The ministry that I'm working with is called VI and Video Instruction Ministries, or in Spanish, Servicio Ministro Cristiano. And the idea is we partner with and equip rural indigenous pastors and elders. Um, how are we doing? 10, 15, okay, we're doing good. The, it, it's an interesting ministry. I will be based, we'll show you a map when I come out, uh, based out of like on the northern frontera, the northern border of uh, Patagonia. And then what we do is we drive south and go from village to village to village to village. You'll be on the road for like two weeks, living out the back of a van. Pray for my sweetie. We're living in the back of the van down by the river. <laughs> for weeks at a time, loving on some guys who um, need it desperately. But the idea being that we hear or know of already, we've already got lots of contacts, about a Jesus man. This is what they call him in Mapungun, a Jesus man. And uh, it's not like you can just call him up and be like, hey, I'm coming over. Uh, it's anytime you... You'll have a city or a town that's got electricity, running water, schools, hospitals, stability, some of the amenities that we've come to rely on here. You go 30 kilometers, 15 miles outside of town in any direction, it's like stepping two, 300 years back in time. You get in these little rural villages. And A couple of years ago, there was a big program where the government gave out a generator to etch each registered village. So one building will have electricity that they use if they've hauled on horseback fuel in to run it. Um, It's not really part of their culture, so they don't do that too often. Uh, That being said, we hear of a Jesus man, and um, and we show up, and and we, uh, again, violently opposed to any sort of outside influence. You don't just walk in there as an outsider and be like, hey, let me tell you about how your beliefs are all wrong and your culture is backwards. It doesn't work like that. there will be a guy generally plowing a field. They're sustenance farmers. They're barely surviving. They're not trying to grow. They're not trying to change a whole lot. They're just trying to feed their kids and keep to themselves. Uh, so with this whole class structure system and them being at the very bottom, you go up and greet somebody in Mapungun, which no self-respecting Chilean does. They come up to here. Like I got pictures. You go into the house. The doorway comes to here. I hit my head on the ceiling. It's just little people. Uh, you go up and, and you're obviously not from there. Tall. Uh, you got hair, but way too much facial hair, and uh, you're speaking their language, which no self-respecting Chilean would do. But you're there, and it's being from the outside, that automatically lumps them, you, in their mind, as upper, upper middle class, upper class. You had money enough to get from whatever country you're from to get here. You've got money. You're upper class. Just how it is. So for an upper class person to come to them, uh, when we can drive to the village, we do. When we can't, we park, and then we backpack in. Uh, you stop at this first village, this first um, farm on the outside, and basically hop out, greet them, and then ask, "Can I plow a field with you today?" Because they're behind the horse with the wood plow. And you get on the other side of that plow and you ride that bad boy all day, and you're out there, you're covered in mud and bloody and awesome. Uh, and at this point, because that's so countercultural in every way, they're just itching to know, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" Please be our guest, and not too unlike the uh, Muslim and Arabic cultures that have worked with in the past. Once you're somebody's guest, they will die defending you, which is handy <laughs> in a closed group. Um, so just in, in getting a little muddy and, and helping plow a field and breaking all the cultural barriers and the expectations socially, you're in. And this guy then becomes your guide to find the Jesus man. He'll walk with you for four or five days to find this Jesus man. By the time he gets there, he's so curious, who's this Jesus man? Hey, you got guys coming to the Lord just trying to find the Jesus man. We haven't even gotten to the ministry part. It's very cool. Um, 
That being said, we show up and, and these guys, we sit down, and unlike me rambling now, it's, it's a, a story-based culture where you talk, or I listen, they talk. And, uh, and it, because it's a story-based culture, when we sit down and I'm sitting across the table from this pastor, I, I say, tell me your story. How did a Mapuche pastor, one, become a pastor, and two, find himself way out here? Uh, because the church is not terribly strong down there at just in general, let alone way out in the middle of this unreached people group. So I sit down and say, tell me your story. And this is a high honor. And they sit down and they, they begin to tell me their story. It usually starts like this. Five, ten, fifteen years ago, depending on who you're talking to. Somebody like Louis Palau, if you're familiar with that name, or Franklin Graham, or Billy Graham, there's a big one. They would have come down and they would have done a tent event, a crusade. And they're sharing about Jesus. And, and whereas here in the States, I got to participate in one of these crusade events, um, when beforehand they talk to all the local churches i don't know if you guys have been part of this and they prep you and they, they say okay we need your contact information so when people come down and get prayed over handed a bible and led to the lord and they're they're excited they hook them up with local churches here in the states they do an excellent job of follow-through down there they don't have the structure to do that they can't call the, there aren't necessarily existing local churches so 15 20 years ago when this happened the crusade would put word of mouth invitation out would an elder from such and such a village Please join us. Be our guest. This is such a high honor because, again, remember, they don't associate class-wise. So you've got an upper-middle-class, upper-class event, big deal, calling your village by name, which nobody would even acknowledge exists, asking for a representative. So they nominate uh, a guy to come, and the guy will walk. One guy I talked to walked for two days. Another guy walked for seven days, one direction, to get to this event with nothing but tribal pantheism in the background. And they come, it's, it's not too unlike here, and God is, in the event that they show up at it, God is just moving powerfully, transforming heads and hearts and speaking clearly and powerfully. So these, these tribesmen, I mean, they're not walking around in, um, what is it called, just a, a loincloth and beads. It's not, not quite like that. I remember it's cold and a lot of rain, so they're wearing heavy clothes. But the tribesmen, they show up and, and they see God moving and they accept Jesus. And they go down, they get prayed over, they're handed a Bible in a language which they may or may not be able to read, if they can read any language. Uh, and they're prayed over. They've never been to a church service. The event ends after two or three days and they walk a week home. The only Christian, an elder with a Bible, default the pastor. And nobody knows they're there. There's no follow-up. So that's where this ministry comes in. We track those guys down. And in the two months of investigating the southern region, I met two pastors who had never encountered another Christian beyond those. They themselves had led to the Lord or led themselves to the Lord five, ten years ago. They're out there. And don't get me wrong. The Holy Spirit is using them powerfully. But our third grade Sunday schoolers have a firmer biblical foundation and understanding of what at least we think church should look like. And these guys, when they've gone to a two-day event, met Jesus, been transformed, and then walk home with a Bible, and now they're the pastor. They're making it up as they go. They're reading it as best they can. They're applying it as best they can without a model, without any follow-up, without any encouragement, without any materials. And even if they had money, which they don't, they don't have access to the materials. Here we go online, download a podcast, walk down to the bookstore. Even if it's not a Christian bookstore, you can find some of the popular Christian books there. It's just, it's not available. Um, so the ministry, VIM, the one that we're stationed with, exists to go in and find these guys. Because though the Holy Spirit is using them mightily, they are starving for any sort of material, any sort of encouragement. 
So we get the story. I sit down and tell me your story. We want to tell me, tell me about the victories. Tell me about brother-in-law accepted Jesus, kids accepted Jesus, this guy over here accepted Jesus. And they don't even know what that's supposed to look like, but the transformation is powerful. The guys who are liars stop lying. The lazy guys stop, start working and contributing. The guy who's beating his wife quits beating his wife. That might have even been the pastor. Um, so the, the transformation is obvious. And at first, the eldership, they love this whole Jesus concept, especially since it's being introduced from the inside by one of their own leaders. And they embrace this whole Christian church. They may not uh, sign on, but it's okay. It's okay that there's this change. Um, and that's, that's great. And then we... Again, eight-hour-long conversation about story, eight-hour-long conversation about victories. They're talkers, and I need naps because my brain just... Uh, wake up, we're on the second or third day, and I say, so what have the trials been? And this is where it gets really hard, and we do a lot of crying forehead to forehead. They talk about how eventually... Pastor Flores, he's an easy example. I'll tell his story real quick. He was this guy who won, one of these guys who walked, met Jesus, came back, had positive um, results at first, but then... In his village, three times, but I think usually it's two times a year, the whole 30-family village will come together, 35, about 35 families spread out. They'll come together around the totem pole, and they will sacrifice to the spirits. It's kind of their version of and mix. Fourth of July, because it's super patriotic as far as who we are as Mapuche, it's religious, so like Christmas and Easter, plus um, Thanksgiving. I mean, it's when the family comes together. So you take all of our big holidays that are important and lump them into one purpose, and that's what this sacrifice is, because all the families come together. It's spiritual in essence, and it's their big patriotic, this is nationalist, who we are as a, a people. And, uh, and we're sacrificing chickens and goats and cows to the spirits. This is also where they get all of their meat for the next season, so that's why they do it a couple times a year. Um, well... Flores and his, his congregation were reading through. They get to 1 Corinthians. And in 9, it talks about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. They didn't even get to the part how it's more about the weaker brother's conscience, all things have made clean in the Lord. It's just the Holy Spirit used this chapter to point out something that's throughout Scripture and that we should not be offering sacrifices to idols and we shouldn't have idols. And, and they were convicted this is idolatry and we can't rip apart the chickens for these other lower spirits in acknowledging that we have the higher God who's over all of them. They may be real, but we want to honor God with everything we have. We can't be divided like that. Good theology for people who like don't have much biblical background. And, uh, and they, they prayed about it, they fasted about it, and they voted on it and said, we're not going to participate, uh, which was a huge step. And it cost them dearly. Um, when they announced that they weren't going to participate, that means being a Christian meant you couldn't be a Mapuche. Following Jesus meant you couldn't be a Mapuche. Because that's what they understood themselves to be as Mapuche. So we've now unintentionally um, attacked one of the tenets of what it means to be a Mapuche. And by we, I mean God. And, uh, and this caused cause for bloodshed. They kill the brother-in-law. Um, the whole tribe scatters. And they go into surrounding villages and surrounding tribes. And just like what happened in Corinth in the first century church who was dealing with us then... Uh, now there are missionaries in all those other villages, and Jesus is spreading and growing. So it can be um, interesting and tricky when you show up on the outskirts of a town, you don't know what the history is there. It could have been one of those towns. It could be a town in the highlight of, of just uh, first receiving Jesus, or they could be like, what are you talking about, and what's this Jesus man? And then you plot a field, and it was a good time, but you look for another guide. Uh, and you, you show up, so we've got 
story, victories, trials. And then my favorite part, we sit down and say, so tell me your vision. What is the vision God has given you for your people? And every village is different. And this is where we come in because I've got hundreds of materials, everything from sock puppet, finger ministry for little kid evangelism to sex, drugs, alcohol, violence, abuse, counseling, to bioponics and microfinancing, basic administration, to straight-up seminary classes. Like you name it, depending on what the self-perceived need of this guy is, we've got video and audio materials to help him with that. And again, primarily video and audio because reading is out. Um, uh, Javier, Pastor Javier, he's an easy story of this and, and a good one. He, um, I was talking with him about two and a half months ago. He, he's kind of an oddball. He, um, when he... he he was bored. He had three brothers and sisters in addition, so four kids. And the three brothers and sisters all died when they were little. He was the only one who survived. That's not uncommon. That's why you have a lot of kids. But what was uncommon was that even as a kid, he didn't like kids. He'd rather spend time in the field plowing with the, the men than playing with the kids because the kids, I mean, they're raised as a pack. They run around as a pack. And depending on where you are when it's dinner time, that family feeds you. Depending on where you are, if there's a problem, that family takes care of it. So it's not like every kid goes to their own home every night for dinner or to sleep or whatever. They just run around as a pack. So for a kid not to want to associate with other kids and hang out was weird. And he grows up and he marries. And he was a little vague as far as like, could they not have kids? They decide not to have, for whatever reason, they didn't have kids. So here's a guy who didn't like kids when he was one, still doesn't like kids now. Which is why he was the one elected to walk for the week to receive Jesus and come back. Because his kids wouldn't starve to death while he was gone. Because he didn't have any. It worked out pretty well at first. But later, and several years in, he's reading in the book of Matthew where... Uh, Jesus is talking with the, the religious folk, the Pharisees and the scribes, and um, this is Will Hughes' paraphrase, so look it up in Matthew, it's a good time, where he's talking with these guys about very serious religious important things, and these moms show up with their little kids, and the little kids come running up, and they're a huge distraction, and the Pharisees are like, go away. Uh, and Jesus instead just grabs one, puts it on his lap, and says, you know, if you intend to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to become like one of these and he elevates children in a society where children weren't particularly valuable. And the spirit just, boom, hits Javier and says, you need to love on kids. He doesn't even like kids. He's never had kids. He doesn't know how to do kids. The circumstances around this were in 2010. It was down there. The swine flu came through. Had it. That was an interesting experience in another country. But in these villages, because there aren't roads that go up to them, there's no clinic. Even if the government wants to do help with things, they can't. Uh, so of the 30-something couples, like four of both par- sets of both parents died, and then random uh, single of the spouses passed away. And there's all these kids whose immune systems are stronger and lived. So there's a dev- decimated workforce and just as many kids to feed, less workers, and, and it's just a mess. So they're struggling just to continue life, and people are starving. And the Holy Spirit touches Pastor Javier says, I want you to love on the kids. So he starts to describe to me what we know is a soup kitchen, which he's never seen or heard of in his life. He's like, what would happen if, if, if three times a week, every other day maybe, uh, we could get enough food donated by people in the church from, from our congregation and just feed the kids to make sure that all the kids eat at least once every other day? Wouldn't that be awesome? I'm like, that would be awesome. Uh, <laughs> Come with me to the van. <laughs> so, so we go to the van. He's got like no administrative background and, and has never even seen or heard of this. Right now we're running a soup kitchen in Mendoza. This is like our... Um, it's pretty awesome. So the, uh, this is one example. Depending on the self-perceived need, he would have been all about the administrative and the uh, sustainable soup kitchen practice stuff as well as he was super interested in, in bolstering his preaching. 
uh, what preaching could look like. He'd never heard of another preacher other than when he accepted the Lord, so he got in that. We will rotate these guys through 15 to 17 classes worth of materials, depending on what the interest and what the need is. That's what we do. That's what I get to do. I'm basically a mobile librarian slash encourager, and I get to cry forward to forward with some dudes who are very much on their own. There's no follow-up. They may or may not be associated with the denomination at all, and even if they are, the denomination doesn't go out because the upper-class people who have the resources, time to do it, can't. I invited a, an upper-class pastor to come with me to experiment this because I was told they're not going to. And he said, he, he, I said, why won't you come? Because he said, no. He said, well, if I go with you, um, we may be able to let some people, but I will be so tainted by having spent time with these guys that when I come back, I can no longer effectively minister to my people. It wasn't his belief, but it's the people's belief that he's ministering to. So if he did it, he'd have to do it in secret, and that's really hard to do in a small town. So he couldn't come. That being said, there's this really cool opportunity for outsiders to come in, because I can go from playing tennis with the mayor's son talking about Jesus to eating in a hubble in the same afternoon, and nobody's tainted. Uh, we get to be that bridge. Now, we're excited about making it increasingly indigenous, but the Holy Spirit's breaking down and has to break down some of those walls before we can, before we can do that. What time is this? Okay, good. I can get into a sermon at some point. Uh, that being said, we are transitioning from the streets of Mendoza into the rainforests of Patagonia, going from urban street kid ministry to pastoral tribal support. It's a big switch for both of us. Ava, my sweetie, is from Mendoza. She's a social worker. She's been serving in this barrio for uh, going on 15 years, which is actually how I met her. And it wasn't until a couple years ago I was brave enough to even make eye contact, let alone talk. Uh, Not something I like to do on mission trip is talk to girls. Uh, God had other plans, and now we're getting married. (laughs) So... Uh, the 15th, very exciting. Pray for her. We're living in the back of a van on the move all the time. Uh, I could show you pictures and tell you all about it if you want more information. Something that we do is uh, we have a blog where I tell lots of stories. If you were to go on now, you'd see full of ice because I'm coming out of uh, eastern Turkey, and that's another story for another time. But uh, have four-sentence-long email updates. If you're anything like me, you've got people that you love and ministries that you love and maybe you even support, and you're just inundated with four, three, or four-page-long emails with great stories and lots of great pictures, and these are people I love. But when they come in, I have to wait till the weekend if I'm going to have the emotional stamina to, to get through them and actually pray for the prayer requests because I'm just inundated. So if you're anything like me, uh, something that I've developed is, is a four-sentence email update. The four sentences, it comes with a picture. It comes with a, hey, there's an update on the blog. Click here if you want to read, like my mom, every word and see every picture. Click here. It'll take you to the blog. Um, the gist of kind of what's going on in a sentence and a prayer request. So it's 20 seconds to read. If you throw up a Dear Jesus 20-second long prayer, please bless Will and Ava and such and such or VI and Patagonia and this. Uh, that's it. And then come to it maybe the weekend after if you can. You never have to be afraid to open one of my updates. <laughs> so if you're anything like me, we're, we're experimenting because I, I want to keep the prayer supporters involved in such a way that isn't um, so overwhelming that you can't even bring yourself to open the email. We've got a website. We've got all kinds of fun stuff, and I'd love to share with you more about that at the back table afterwards with pictures. Right. Sermon. Word of God. That was a good transition, huh? Um, <laughs> why don't we just open there now? And while you do, I want to pray. We're in Ephesians 6, 10 through. We'll see how far we get. Father God, I want to thank you so much 
for this beautiful church and these beautiful faces. What you're doing here, what Dan has told me about, that you're doing here, the mighty ways that you're working. The people are meeting the Lord. People are growing in faith. People are, are learning to walk in obedience. Uh, we're learning about your word. And I pray that today, as we look at some crazy stuff, that you would open our hearts, that you would have been preparing our hearts for this all week. And you would give me the creativity to be able to articulate well in a, a time frame that honestly merits its own series, some scriptures that, um, that are powerful, that you would use these to, to help us to follow you better. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm just going to read this and we're going to jump in. It's kind of a popular verse. We like to talk about the armor of God. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I'm going to NIV. If you've got another verse, that's the version. That's totally cool. This is easy for me to memorize and easy in English. So finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after having done everything to stand. Stand firm then, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, and the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We'll stop there. put this into context again sermon series seven months it's been awesome it's been spread out had a mini series and acts in there good stuff also but way back in the day maybe you guys remember dan simultaneously introduced to the greeting of what's up broski and also gave an outline for the book itself and he says the first he and many other awesome men who love the bible and study and are way smarter than me have said that the first three books of the book of ephesians are kind of talking about doctrine, what we believe, why we believe it, who Jesus is, who we are in relationship to that, where our spiritual realities are and and what we believe about that. And then the second three books have kind of been called the, the handbook to Christian living, the guide to what it looks like to be a church and to live this together. And again, this was a circular letter. It's called the book of Ephesians. It's one of the towns it went to, but it was going all over the place. And this was kind of a practical, here's what we believe to make sure the doctrine is good, and this is how we live it out. So it's a six-book-long, six-chapter-long book. We've gone all the way up to here. So we, we got what we believe, why believe it. And then, then, then Paul, just to make it awesome, throws in the spiritual warfare side. I really think that that's because here's what we believe. We acknowledge that we believe it. Here's what we do about it. So we want to do that. And then he touches on, so why then is it so hard to do what we believe and what we want to do? Because there are other dynamics. I mean, there's our lack of understanding, which we need to study and we need to grow. And then there's our, our lack of application and our lack of obedience. So he talks about here's some practical ways. For example, uh, in the first part, we would learn that God is merciful, gracious, and, and faithful. Therefore, in the second half, Paul says, since in our flesh we're liars and uh, 
we need to lay aside our, our, our malice, our slander. We need to, to die to those things in Christ and become more like our model, Jesus. And like God, be merciful, be gracious, speak words that edify and build up. So this is, we have an understanding of what we need to do. We know what it needs to look like and we want to do it. And we're being transformed in the image and the knowledge of Jesus. So there's our side of things being covered. But there's another factor and it's this spiritual warfare side of things. Because when we're honest and we talk about it, Satan and demons are very real. And they would like nothing more than to see us fall on our faces in this. And now... We've got to talk a little bit about, about who Satan and these demons are. And because if this is a fight, we're talking about warfare uh, and a battle that's raging on. This is a battle that's been raging on for a very long time. In Scripture we read that Satan, through the sin of pride, wanted to be like God, and he rebelled against God, started an insurrection, was defeated and cast down along with the other angels that were with him. And Satan declared war on God and hates God. He also hates anybody who's with God, particularly those who would choose to step out of darkness into light and give the God the glory that he deserves. So there's kind of this misconception that a lie I believed, I first came to know the Lord at about 16, that, okay... I'm living in darkness, I understand that. The church is telling me that there's all this garbage going on. So if I accept Jesus and I have the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, mighty God on my side, then everything's just going to get easy. So if I accept Jesus and then I start doing the right things, thinking the right things, saying the right things, then life is going to be boom from here on out. The suicide, the depression, the stealing, the lying, all the stuff that's in my background will be healed by the Lord, and it will, don't get me wrong here, but it's going to be Smooth sailing from here on out. I wonder how many of us still have remnants of that lie in our heads. Because if you do, like me, when you've accepted the Lord and you step from death into life, there's kind of this, this false expectation that any time I come up against resistance of any sort, that means it's not from the Lord. It's not the Lord's calling. Because God's going to make it easy. He's preparing the way. He's preparing the steps. He's preparing the hearts. Therefore, all I have to do is step out and it's going to be a piece of cake. Uh, Well, I found very early, and maybe some of you guys can back this up, that it doesn't necessarily always work like that. There are these powerful moments where obviously God has prepared the way and everything goes smoothly. But it's not even necessarily, in my experience, the norm. Uh, Even Not not even 50-50. Like if I get a 10% of it being like... That is an awesome month. Uh, so then what's going on here? If, if we're doing what's right, we're believing what's right, and we're trying to follow God and our heart's in the right place, who is this Satan and why is this so hard? If we are born, and the Bible talks about how we are born into the flesh with a sin nature, broken. We are born into a world that Satan has been cast down to and has dominion over. Now, he can't read our minds, don't get me wrong, but he's had a very long time to observe human nature. He knows all the buttons to push. And it's not, again, a little point of clarification, Satan himself is one. He, however, has a whole legion of demons below him that are assigned. If you've read the screw tape letters, this is kind of an interesting, uh, I won't even go there, but I highly recommend the book. It'll kind of put some things. C.S. Lewis is a good guy. Um, 
don't get too distracted here. I'm going to chase some, some rabbits. <laughs> Rabbit. Um, although he can't read our mind, or the, the darkness cannot read our mind, he does know about our fears, has watched our lives, has reiterated lies into who we are. I'm not worthy of anything. God couldn't love me. That sin isn't forgivable. Um, If I really let people know who I am or open up, whether it's at school or work or in the church or to my wife, uh, they're not going to love me. They're not going to accept me. There's these deep fundamental lies that our whole lives the enemy has been just nailing into place and reiterating and validating to the point where when it comes to actually walking out what we know to be truth, what we believe to be truth, what has been modeled for us by God, the minute that we try and step out in obedience, he's like, ha! Trigger that memory. Get the circumstance or have one jerk say one bad thing and it's just like, oh, what was I thinking? And back to where we are and there's this dynamic of... The enemy trying so hard to keep us from moving forward in our walk with God and giving God the glory that he deserves and and actually being obedient and actually seeing the things that we believe through into fruition. I would even argue more so when somebody is willing to step out in boldness and in obedience. Are you going to receive that that pushback, that, that tension, that... That frustration, those doubts, those fears, the, the people not receiving things. Uh, I mean, I, easy story. I got a buddy who um, is a missionary in West Bank over in Palestine. And his grandma led him to the Lord, right? Great guy. And uh, his beautiful wife, and they have two years over there, and they come back stateside, and they're getting ready to go back long-term. They're getting some training. And in the, the meantime, they have two kids, two babies. And... Uh, their call is there. Their whole family is for it. But when they're getting ready to go, Grandma calls up and threatens to sue them and is talking to CPA about how this is abuse, this is unhealthy, that you would even consider taking my grandbabies into a war zone with those people. This is the woman who led him to the Lord. You'd be thinking, she's like, yes, walking in Jesus, yes, serving, reaching the ends of the earth. But it's amazing how the enemy will take those And that's an easy example of somebody who's really going big for the Lord and use them to just kind of, what what is going on here? And much, much of that, I'm not saying every hangnail in life is because of the enemy, but there are a lot of things that are going on. When was the last time, here's a question I actually want you to answer, when was the last time you felt like you got punched in the stomach emotionally? Uh, Kid makes a bad decision, you're having trouble at home, something goes wrong at work, car breaks down, it might be financial crisis, hospital bills, doc calls and says it's cancer. Emotionally, the last time you got a sucker punch, have you been sucker punched lately? Happens all the time. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's Satan's doing, but what happens next so often in my own heart, in my own life, and maybe you're bigger than this, but as I talk and share and listen, it sounds like this is pretty common, is we go, those lies, they start to come back. God, I thought you were bigger than this. God, I thought you were in control. Does this mean that, that you're not in control? Are you there? Are you hearing? Are you all-powerful? I, I mean, maybe you... 
you, you could do something about it, but maybe you're busy helping that person over there. Or, or maybe uh, you don't love me enough to do this. Or maybe I'm just not worthy of being healed. Or maybe, uh, you know, we get these lies that then begin to be triggered. And it goes from a, a natural, physical realm into a spiritual realm real quick. And that temptation is to go, then what am I even bothering? Why do I even try? Do you see the connection, how it can go from just our day-to-day to spiritual warfare and the temptation to walk away, to quit reading our Bible, to pull out a community, to, to walk away from God altogether, to stop praying, whatever it is. We go from the things that are going on in our life and the enemy twisting it in such a way that our natural reaction and weakness is to walk away and say, well, guess I was sold a bill of lies. This is spiritual warfare and how the enemy loves to use the circumstances that are meant to destroy us To pull us entirely away from the very thing that God has called us to. Uh, I had a a long story, and I'm not even going to go there, about my first experience in Chile. Where I was basically on my own for the first month walking the streets. Completely frustrated and crying. Felt abandoned. The missionary was in the hospital. I didn't even know he was. I was sleeping on the streets at night with homeless people. I couldn't communicate or feel my, feed myself. And it was just a mess. And I had so clearly heard God call me go. And, and then I get there and I had these grand, ideas of grandeur. I was going to go and serve and, and love and bless. And I can't even feed myself. Uh, how could this possibly be God's calling? And there's this verse that so many of us know about how it, it, it's... Uh, what the enemy meant to use to destroy us, God is going to use for good. That's, again, well, he's, I've got it all printed out, but we've just abandoned that because we don't have time. Uh, and whereas now I can totally look back and see how God used that month of being alone and surrounded by people but terribly alone and lonely and to reconfigure the trajectory of my life and I can look back and see how faithful he was in the moment we have this temptation just like I did every night to shake my fist at God and go where are you and oh how the enemy loves that Uh, so the reality of all crossover struggles yep quickly begin chilly first time Turns out this is in the Bible all over the place. I mean, you go back to Genesis 5, we got the story of Joseph, where his brothers were jealous and angry and full of hate. They intend to kill him. They decide to throw him in a pit and sell him. And uh, this is a guy who God loves and is taken care of, and bad goes to worse. Now he's in a prison cell, accused of uh, fooling around with the Pharaoh's wife, and it, it doesn't look like it's going to end well. And again, what the enemy intended to destroy when given to God becomes an opportunity to show off how big and how powerful God is. So the reason I'm kind of saying some of these things, or Job, oh man, there's another story if you want to talk about a guy who's loved by God, who gets messed with, is just to combat that lie that I I mentioned on how uh, if I accept Jesus, everything's going to be fine and easy, because that's simply not the case. The enemy and the spiritual warfare is very real. And all that saying, why don't we transition into the good news? Um, Because the rest of this chapter, we're just flying might even end on time, is talking about how God has given us tools specifically to combat lies that, and tricks that the enemy has for us. And this is where we get a little practical. Uh, so where we were talking, we got through verse 12, finally be strong, flesh and blood, rulers of darkness. That's a reality in Christ outside of Christ. Oh, before I move on, I do want to say in that category that's now all completely scrambled, had great transitions uh, in English. We are born into darkness. 
We're born into the flesh and we're broken. The only way to go from the kingdom under the dominion of Satan into the kingdom under the dominion of Christ is to be born again. So that being said, there are a lot of people who don't like this concept of war, of being a soldier, of being in an army and being in a fight. Uh, we'd rather elope off to Canada and avoid the draft as if it worked that way or pull a Switzerland and be like, nah, nah, we're neutral, it's all good, go this team secretly. No, uh, we are born into one side and whether you're intentionally pursuing, I'm going to serve Satan today or just not wanting to deal with any of it, uh, he will use you and us for his purposes And the only way to escape being a soldier in that war, in this war, in that side, is to be born into the kingdom of God, who is... uh, Jesus, early in his ministry, says, I've come to set captives free. He's come to to transform us from darkness into light so that we can uh, serve God and be an example and give God the glory and and love people and walk in the way that we were created to walk. And uh, he's come to give us liberty and freedom and joy and hope and peace and... Uh, and all of these things that we simply do not have without him. So to go from darkness to light, from one side of the army, we're in the fight one way or another. It has to be intentional. You're either on the enemy's side or you're on the Lord's side. And there's warfare going on. We walk around day to day and I see so many guys and gals who are just covered in these flaming darts of the enemy and don't even realize they're not even walking. They're trying to crawl through life one blow after another. And they don't understand some of the dynamics that are going on here. Oh, I'm fine. But we're not fine. Even as Christians who have God, who have walked from darkness into light, who are going through constant temptation and constant warfare and constant battle, with, here it says, having done all you can to stand, stand firm. That means you've come to the end of yourself. In all of this fight, you've braced yourself, and there's attacks coming from... When you come to the end of yourself, God is inviting us, now put on the armor. You've tried it. You didn't have the strength. I've tried it. I didn't have this. You ever been in an actual fight? Any of you ever wrestled before? Tell me why the matches and fights last no more than five minutes. It's exhausting. You come to the end of yourself so fast. Christian life is like that. We're constantly wrestling and struggling with these other dynamics. So when we come, it's not even if you come. It's when you come to the end of yourself, stand firm and put on a strength that is not ours, but actually God's. Let's transition now. I'm going to just keep going. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So, no, we just did that. 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Belt of truth. All right. So if the tool that God has given us is the belt of truth... What's the opposite of truth? In John, we read about how Satan is the father of lies. Uh, the enemy loves to come in and put those lies that we've already touched on several times into your mind and your heart. The fears, the regrets, the bitterness, all of that comes in and it's manipulated you through the lies. How then can we combat those lies? Have any of you ever heard a lie? Is that out there? And this isn't just me talking about stuff that's hypothetical and maybe some super Christian is going to encounter. No, this is... Have you been lied to before? Have you ever lied to yourself before? Have you... Okay, and, and let's get real practical here. Uh, belt of truth. So if, if our tool to combat lies is truth, if I could challenge us this week just, just to go there and the week after that and the week after that, part of being transformed in the knowledge and the image of of Christ is to reflect on who am I? 
what's going on. Uh, and we reflect back over our life and we see the hand of God working and it's exciting. But every once in a while, or quite often in my case, I come across a lie that I believed. Um, how personal to get. That sin is part of who I am is a big lie. Many of us. If I step out of that sin, out of that part of, of what has always been, then I'm being unfaithful to myself or uh, that's how God created me to be. So if I step out of that, that problem in my life that Scripture is talking about that I've identified so much with, uh, then that just doesn't make sense. And I have well, got hooked into that. What is the truth? So on, on your, uh, I noticed in the, the handout today, there's sermon notes in a black back page. If you were to just take a line and draw it down the middle, and maybe a lie comes to mind right now, something that you've believed about yourself or believed about God that's just simply not true. You know it's not true, but it still comes into your thinking. The temptation is still there. If you were to label one column lies and the other column truth, and you put that lie there, and then you turn to the truth, and you look into Scripture, and you seek godly counsel, and you put the truth down, it comes into a simple decision. Will I live in light of that lie or will I live in light of this truth? Because the battle is not necessarily in the circumstances that come. God allows all kinds of circumstances to happen, all the kinds of people that he loves very much. But what we do in the moment of temptation becomes crucial. Will we live in light of that lie or will we live in the light of the truth? The circumstances will come. The battle will come. The flaming arrows come. The doubts come. What are you going to choose? And over time, it becomes much, much faster and much, much easier to just kick into, I'm going to live in light of that truth. Belt of truth buckled around our, our waist is a super practical tool when it comes to fighting the spiritual battle that comes with the lies, the father of lies, and the enemy that comes along. Belt of truth buckled around your waist. Breastplate of righteousness in place. Uh, how many of you... On your own, this is not a trick question, are righteous. Are we familiar with the word? Yeah, Dan, of course, he's a pastor. (laughs) Nah, okay. So here, when we go through Scripture, we find places um, where it talks about how our most righteous actions are like a filthy rag before God. In our own strength, the best thing that we can do, the most holy awesome, well-intentioned thing that we have to offer in our obedience, in our thinking, in our desires, in our motives, is garbage uh, before God. Um, Again, born into sin, born into a world under the dominion of Satan, our best shot at doing the right thing is just garbage. When Christ came and he died for us, it was to impart his righteousness on our behalf. When we're going to heaven, we're standing before God, righteous, It's not because of something we did. It's because of something that God has done. So when we're talking about here putting on the armor, we've come to the end of ourselves. We've already tried and we've fallen so very short. We're putting on his truth. We're also putting on his righteousness, a breastplate of righteousness. And this, oh man, when I started grappling with this, there's another lie out there that's a uh, lie. Funny that, that. If I'm tempted, I've already sinned. Because if I weren't bad and sinning, the thought would never have crossed my mind. I wouldn't be at school tempted to look at the test. I wouldn't be at work tempted to fudge the numbers if I wasn't broken and jacked up and a sinner. 
So the secondary lie to that comes in and says, well, if you've already been tempted, if you're already in sin, you might as well do it and get some benefit for that remorse and that guilt that you feel. It's all messed up. You might as well go forward with it. You, you have to repent anyway. Uh, enjoy the pleasure or, or do whatever it is. So if it's um, whatever that temptation, whether it's cheating, whether it's fudging the numbers, whether it's uh, sneaking some cookies out of somebody else's lunch at, at work at a community fridge, you know what I'm talking about, or, or whatever, and then you get that little lie in there saying, well, you're just a sinner and look at you thinking that way. Uh, you may as well at least enjoy the cookie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or not bomb the test that you should have studied for. Um, go for it. And it's in this moment that the actual warfare happens. Because the lie is that if, if you've been tempted, you're in sin. And we know from the truth that that's not true. Jesus was tempted constantly. He's the easiest, easiest of examples to point to. Somebody who was tempted and never sinned. So just because we're tempted does not mean we're in sin. It's in that moment of temptation. Do we choose to walk in righteousness or go ahead and follow through with the sin? And whose righteousness are we walking? We've already established that ours is just no, no good. We're walking in the righteousness of Christ. When he died and imparted his righteousness into us, it gave us the option to, in the moment of temptation, stand up under it and have another option. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it talks about how no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And when tempted, God will not allow you to have been tempted by more than you can bear. And he is faithful, for he will have provided, the, provided a way for you to stand up under it. This is a promise that when we're in that moment of warfare and the enemy has got those lies and the temptation is there, do we walk in the light, in the truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, knowing that we have an option, knowing that God has given us the strength to walk through this? Or do we believe the lie in the darkness and say, well, I'm already a sinner and I've already been tempted and I may as well just receive some perk from that. Do you see where the, war, you see where the fight actually occurs? It's not even necessarily in the fact that you have to take a test. It's not in the, the fact that there's the medical call saying you have cancer. Those things may have been staged, but the way that it's going to turn out, is this going to be for the glory of God? Is he going to use it? Is he going to call us to... Oh, cool. Sorry, a little flash up on the screen there. I got an ADD moment. Um, are we going to stand in the light and put on the armor of God, or are we going to continue to walk in darkness and follow through with the sin and the temptation? Because that's where the war is. That's the other factor that we don't talk about. That's what makes it so hard to go from, in the first three books, I got the doctrine. The last three books, we know what we should do. So why is it so hard? Because there is a war raging on all around us. We're on one side or the other. If you're still, if you don't have, if you're not walking on in, in, in Christ, having been imparted with his strength and his armor and his promises, you're on a team. It's not like deciding not to be on a team is, is going to get you out of this. We are in one side or the other. And if you're trying to do it on your own, the hits are just going to keep coming. I, even if you cross into the other side, if you accept the Lord right now today, the hits are just going to keep coming. The difference is God's going to get the glory out of your life he deserves. And in the midst of all that suffering and trial, he's going to impart us with peace, with joy. It doesn't necessarily take all the bad stuff away, but because our eyes are on him and we trust the one who's in control, it's a whole nother life. And it's totally worth it. So if, if you're there, 
We got to get from being born into the army of darkness into the kingdom of light through accepting Jesus. And if you're in the kingdom of light and this is just a a daily reality and really hard, we got to remember we're going to come to the end of ourselves. The reality is the hits keep coming. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to live in light of the darkness and the lies and the deception or the truth? Are we going to put the truth on every day, every time a lie comes along? What am I going to believe? Am I going to believe the, the thing that God, Satan has put in my head, in my heart, all my life up until this point, and now I see in the Word of God that that's not true? Which am I going to, which am I going to base my decisions on? Which am I going to base my obedience on? Which am I going to base my uh, thinking on? And then the breastplate of righteousness. It's not my righteousness, it's God's righteousness. When we come to that temptation and the war is raging on around, is it going to bink and bounce off? Because we're going to put on the righteousness of God and step into what we know is right and step into what we know is good. And if there's flack that comes from that, it's okay because we're in the hands of God. Or are we just going to kind of squirm over to the side and say, well, you know, whatever. We have a choice every day. Every time this war is raging on around us, every time we're tempted comes up to put on the armor of God and to stand in the strength of Jesus, which is so much bigger than ourselves because we've already established that we can't do it on our own. We're there. We're at the end of the service. So in conclusion, we're going to go to the conclusion. If you could walk away with any one of these things, I would just be thrilled. We are at war, in a war zone, in danger of being attacked and taken down daily, especially those who are striving to walk out what God has put in their heart. We have to pick a side, not picking a side that we're on one. If this, in this life we are born into the kingdom of sin and rebellion... And we are only reborn into the kingdom of righteousness by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We have to pick a side. And that's not just a one-time decision. That's an every day in the midst of the war. And the last one. In our own strength, no matter how stubborn, strong, skilled, or gifted any of us are, we do not have the ability to win. We actually need God to do this. Yes, we are those choosing to put on the armor of God when the temptation comes. But the armor of God is God's strength, protection, and weapons after we've come to the end of ourselves. It's his power, his offer, your choice. We must make that choice. We must make it today. We must make it tomorrow. And then repeat. Fair enough? I'm going to leave Dan. We're in verse like 14, I think. So he's going to get to do more of this next week. But um, that is a little bit scattered of a message. And I hope that God would have used it to touch some of you.